Hi, I'm Salima Shivji, and I'm a reporter here in Mumbai. We're gearing up for the biggest election in history right now, with Prime Minister Narendra Modi looking very likely to win his third term. And whether you love him, hate him, or know nothing about him, there's no denying Modi is one of the most powerful political figures out there right now. Learn why in the newest season of Understood. Modi's India Understood, available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Elaine Chow. Usually I'm the senior producer on Nothing is Foreign, uh, but this week I'm stepping in for Tamara, who's uh, taking a well-deserved week off. Here's the show. You might have seen this photo going around last week. Five men lying face down on the pavement, each with their hands tied in front of a car. And a letter claiming to be from Mexico's Gulf Cartel is stuck to the windshield. A bizarre scene that tonight a senior law enforcement official tells NBC News appears to be an apology from the cartel. The shocking admission almost unprecedented. It says that the Gulf Cartel apologizes to the Society of Matamoros, the relatives of Misarelli, that was a Mexican national who was killed in this attack, and the affected American people and families. It came after four Americans were kidnapped in Matamoros, just across the Rio Grande, about a 20-minute drive across the border. They were friends on a road trip from South Carolina, on their way to an appointment for a medical procedure for one of them. Mexican authorities very quickly stepped in to find them. And in a matter of days, they announced that two of them were killed and the other two were released. This week, after this attack, officials in Texas are again warning Americans not to cross the border into Mexico, especially for spring break. And while the violence is far from unusual in Matamoros, the very quick response to the kidnapping is. Thousands of people continue to be missing in Tamaulipas, the state where the city is located. So for the residents there, being found so quickly, like what happened for the American visitors, that's actually pretty rare. This week on the show, what life is like on the ground in Matamoros, the Gulf Cartel's complicated role there, and why this recent attack and the response to it has brought out so much frustration about Mexico's drug war. And later, we'll hear about protests that have erupted in South Korea over the government's handling of wounds from the country's time under Japanese occupation. Many people resent a new plan to compensate victims of forced labor with money from Korea and not Japan. I'm Elaine Chow, filling in for Tamarican Dapper, and this is Nothing is Foreign. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera has spent a lot of time in Matamoros, studying the way that organized crime works there and in the state of Tamaulipas. She wrote a book about all that called Los Zetas Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy, and Civil War in Mexico. Hi, Guadalupe. Hello, Elaine. 
So a couple of days after this attack, officials in Texas again asked people not to cross the border into Mexico for spring break. That's the point of view from the American side of the border. What's the reaction been like on the ground in Matamoros, in the state of Tamaulipas? Well, this is important and very interesting. They have lived several years of extreme levels of violence, you know, massacres, terrible massacres, both within the city and in other cities that are along the border. Reynosa, Nuevo Laredo. For example, I remember in the years 2010, 2011, the San Fernando massacres, San Fernando 1, San Fernando 2, migrants that were killed 72 first, and then, you know, bodies found in so-called narco graves. So, I mean, this is another terrible thing that happened, but they are used to hear bad news. Bodies have been found very near there. People have disappeared. People have to pay extortion fees. So for Mexicans and for the communities in Matamoros, this is this is normal. I mean, mm-hmm. what is not normal is the speed in which the Mexican right. authorities um, made the investigation and found the four, the two people alive and the other two bodies. Right. And, and why is the speed of the recovery and the massive push, I think, on the part of Mexican law enforcement to find these Americans, why has that been surprising or, or unique to people in the community? Well, the speed, of course, but they also recognize and they also say that this is because of the pressure of the U.S. government. The the pressure of the U.S. government on the Mexican government really made them, you know, act quickly and why they cannot act quickly with their own Mexican citizens. That's right. that's also something that they are mentioning with right. surprise. And, and is there frustration associated with that? Of course, there is frustration. But the normalization of violence, the normalization of the situation of impunity, corruption, and the weak rule of law is also part of this. They don't expect better because they have not seen better. Do you think that this would have gone differently if the four people kidnapped were Mexican civilians instead of Americans? Absolutely. I mean, we have um, hundreds of thousands of people that, that have been killed and around 100,000 people disappeared in the country. I mean, all that happens very frequently, and nobody does anything. And we know that this not does not only apply to Tamaulipas, but there are different families of victims. Victims, even though they have participated in criminal activities because they are victims anyway, they are killed. There was not a legal process taking place, a formal process. and. You know, mothers are looking for their relatives because they don't even find their bodies. The past six years, the governor was even accused of links with organized crime, money laundering, and a number of high-impact crimes. We remember the six years of Francisco Javier Garcia Cabeza de Vaca and the state police. Uh, People allege extrajudicial disappearances, and so they don't trust the federal authorities and even less the state authorities. So, you know... This is a sad reality, but it's a reality. So there's a general distrust of federal authorities as well as state authorities when it comes to dealing with uh, disappearances that happen in the community, violence in the community. And there's kind of this sense that impunity is just normal. That's exactly right. Even uh, like the, I mean, local authorities and state authorities have been linked directly to organized crime.
I want to go back to the cartel that's connected to what's happened, and, and that's the Gulf Cartel, specifically the Scorpion faction. It's known for drug trafficking in this particular part of Mexico. And can you describe for me just how much of a presence they have in Matamoros? Yes. Um, the Gulf Cartel actually was born in the city of Matamoros. It was a, a group, uh, a network of relationships between, you know, different entrepreneurs and, you know, the, the intermediaries and the local authorities to do smuggling of different products. And when the routes of drugs changed from the Caribbean to Mexico, the Gulf Cartel was created and was consolidated in Matamoros. This apology letter where the Gulf Cartel claims responsibility for the kidnappings, I want to read a little bit from it, um, the translation to English. So it says in part, we have decided to turn over those who were directly involved and responsible in the events, who at all times acted under their own decision-making and lack of discipline. And they went on to add that people had gone against the cartel's rules, which includes, quote, respecting the life and well-being of the innocent. Guadalupe, how unusual was it for the Gulf Cartel to issue this kind of letter? It is frequent. It is, you know, it is a strategy that they use to provide messages, to give messages to, you know, other factions. I mean, their enemies mm -hmm. or authorities of different types. Um, that's not infrequent. That is the way sometimes they communicate. And the message makes sense to many of the people who live there. There is kind of a discipline. Yes, there are rules. Not because we're talking about an organization that performs illicit activities. They don't have their own rules, their right. own logics of behavior. I mean, what happened does not surprise a number of people in the city. And I should say I asked because there's been a certain degree of surprise expressed in, in the way that it's framed in Western media uh, in talking about the story and, and this letter. Uh, exactly. I mean, it surprises the Western media. But it does not, not surprise the local media, people who know this region, people who have studied the region, and people who live in that region. This happens all the time. Hmm. And you, you were alluding to rules earlier. And, and what might the letter tell us about the kinds of rules that the Gulf Cartel operates under? Yeah. The Gulf Cartel is not going to call attention of the international media. You're not just going to attack everybody who enters the city, and especially people from the United States, I mean, you don't call attention of the media because you are hitting the plaza, calentando la plaza, which means that you are calling attention and your business, I mean, it's better to be silent to extract the rents that you want to perform the illicit activities in silence. They have this very interesting that I've heard of a number of times. In Matamoros, you don't sell fentanyl, you don't sell tachas, or you don't sell crystals. There are rules with regards to the drugs that can be consumed, to the places where alcohol or certain substances can be distributed. There are rules that have to do with their economic calculations and their calculations to survive. And this was a regular way that the cartel uses to communicate that somebody made a mistake or somebody broke the rules. And the rules, the function of the rules, is it in part to also like accommodate the needs of the community that they're in? Like is part of the intent of the rules that because everything needs to function to a relative degree? We cannot generalize this idea to the whole country, 
but in Matamoros, it's relatively accurate. The Gulf Cartel has worked there with certain type of leadership, like the economic, political, social life uh, is connected with this organization, with organized crime. These people are from the community, from Matamoros. You have your family. They have businesses that are connected with other businesses, illicit and illicit, money laundering activities and all that. So they are part of the community and, you know, you respect your community. Right. It is complicated because obviously they are also perpetrators of violence in the community. But they also play a role in the economics of the community, for example, and they have a social role within the community. Absolutely. That's very accurate, I would say. You know, since this attack has come to light, there's been a lot of commentary from Republican politicians about border security. Senator Lindsey Graham has said that he wants to see Mexican cartels categorized as terrorist organizations. And what do you make of how this issue has become so politicized in recent days? Yeah, we have to remember that the 2024 election is coming. And we have to also understand that for example, the construction of a water fence was a super successful um, campaign theme. And, you know, this creation of fear has been pretty successful for a number of politicians. It's better to um, abate responsibility. It's great as an electoral tool. This, this fear inflicted upon society is also great for the contractors of the U.S. government. Right. There's an industry that's been built up on the war on drugs. That's exactly right. There's an economy that has been built around the war on drugs. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of attention on Matamoros right now because of the attack on the four Americans. And I'm wondering from your purview, as coverage of the story continues, you know, what are you hoping that people outside of Mexico come to understand about the cartel problem in the country? We need to understand the responsibility um, on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border, the demand and the supply side of the equation. If we don't deal with this and we don't understand what are the root causes of the involvement of young people in cartels in Mexico or the consumption of drugs, the reason why people, uh, by a number of people in the United States are addict to drugs, you cannot uh, it address the issue of drug addiction, of drugs entering to the United States by bombing some so-called cartels. As I said, the criminal context, the criminal scenery in Mexico is extremely complex. Are you going to send drones on manned airplanes to destroy communities? How many collateral victims? I mean, crime wars are going to be present. Mm-hmm. Um, Guadalupe, I can hear the passion in your voice uh, when you speak about this. It's clearly something that you really care about. Um, I just want to close on this. What What is kind of as we navigate kind of the complexity of these issues, um, what do you also hope people remember about the community itself in Matamoros? That they have lived through a very long time of violence, that sometimes, you know, living through that make violence normal to people, and this should not happen. I mean, the impunity, the levels of corruption, the level of control that a criminal group that kills people, that extract rents, that do many bad things, you know, the fact that they normalize this is, is really atrocious. 
And we need to understand that we are talking about human beings that have to leave, that have to work. They just cannot move to another place and start all over again. Not everybody has that capacity. Some people have moved, but they are the ones that are more privileged in that regard. So we have to understand their reactions or their hypothesis and, and, and their waves of life have changed because of these terrible dynamics. And we have to put ourselves in, in the plates of these communities. Guadalupe, thank you so much for your time and your insight. You're welcome, Elaine. It was a pleasure talking to you and to your audience. Hi, I'm Salima Shivji, and I'm a reporter here in Mumbai. We're gearing up for the biggest election in history right now, with Prime Minister Narendra Modi looking very likely to win his third term. And whether you love him, hate him, or know nothing about him, there's no denying Modi is one of the most powerful political figures out there right now. Learn why in the newest season of Understood. Modi's India Understood, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The anger that you're hearing there, it was shared by thousands of people who took to the streets of Seoul last week. The apology and compensation from the South Korean government and Japanese companies is shameful and hastily negotiated. It don't reflect any victim's opinion. So it's invalid, and we're saying that we as citizens will protest against it. They were there to protest the South Korean government's new plan to use the country's own funds to pay for the harm caused to people who were forced to work in factories and mines during the years of Japanese occupation. The money would come from a foundation funded by private sector companies in South Korea. Japan wouldn't have anything to do with it. Young Gumdok, who is now 95 years old, worked at a Mitsubishi aircraft factory in Nagoya, Japan, when she was just a teenager. This was during the Second World War. And she says the plan is not a proper apology. There are other people who did something wrong. So I don't want to beg for compensation from you. I don't know if I'll die today or tomorrow. I can't live with this resentment. So I ask you all to push for an apology. Please, it would be too unfair to die like this. South Korea's compensation plan is an attempt to repair its relationship with Japan. A lot of resentment has built up over the years because of Japan's occupation of Korea decades ago. In 1910, after years of war, Japan took control of Korea and made it part of its empire. From then and until the end of the Second World War in 1945, Korean culture was pretty much erased from every aspect of society. You wouldn't see Korean words written in public spaces, you couldn't speak the language at school, and over 200,000 Korean historical documents were burned during that time. 
around 150,000 Koreans were forced to work under appalling and often dangerous situations. The suffering that these laborers went through and how to make amends for it has led to a lot of frustration and anger since the end of occupation. And over time, that hasn't really gone away. To better understand why and how challenging of a road it's been to get to this compensation plan, I talked to Michelle Yehei-Lee. She's the Tokyo and Seoul bureau chief for The Washington Post. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I want to start by talking about who this compensation fund is for. What were the conditions like for South Korean laborers who were forced to work for Japanese companies during wartime? They were assigned to jobs that were often in harsh working conditions, in mines and in factories. And these Korean workers were the ones who were sent to the most dangerous mines where they were exposed to you know, high levels of toxic gases. And many of them, tens of thousands at least, died during this period of forced labor. Their remains were found um, after the war. And some of these workers were um, sent to uh, some really... Uh, dangerous locations. I recently read about a place called the Ghost Islands, where the working conditions at the coal mine was so poor that once you're sent there to work, you're unlikely to return alive. So this forced labor issue is a really contentious part of the relationship between Japan and South Korea, which is rocky to begin with, in large part because of this history of colonization and wartime issues. There are many other controversial issues between the two, you know, territorial disputes. There's also compensation of forced sexual slavery of Korean women by the Japanese. And over these many years, these historical issues have just become very deeply ingrained into the identities of both the South Korean public and the Japanese public. Right. And you describe it as being like deeply ingrained. And it it does feel like something where the trauma has passed on from one generation to another and to another, eh? Right. There are many, many plaintiffs out there that are bringing different claims. I mean, ultimately, it's claims of damages. But at the end of the day, the forced laborers themselves, the people who actually worked in these locations, I believe there are only about three. So the rest of the plaintiffs are their descendants, their family members who really want to seek justice and they feel like their family members were wronged. And in the pursuit of justice, they already passed. And the plaintiffs who are now still alive are are very old. They're in their 90s. We were dragged away by the Japanese. So where else should the apology come from? Who else should we demand it from? If you're Japanese and you have a conscience, speak up. You dragged us away with the promise of middle school, high school education, lured us away by telling us that you would compensate us for our work. You have left us sick and disabled and are now playing dumb. So where do we bring our grievances? There have been several attempts at mending this dispute, and I want to navigate them in chronological order, if that's all right. And, and South Korea and Japan signed a treaty back in 1965 about all of this. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there? 
1965, Japan and Korea signed a treaty to normalize diplomatic relations. And that's a very important part of this issue because it really sort of dictates how the two sides see their role in who should be compensated and whom should pay. So um, Japan maintains that this forced labor issue and every other issue related to the colonial days um, were settled through this treaty. Japan paid $500 million in grants and loans to South Korea at the time to settle quote, completely and finally, unquote, the claims stemming from the occupation of the peninsula. The South Korean government, of course, signed on to this treaty, but it disagrees that the 1965 agreement prohibits these individual laborers, the victims and their families from claiming damages. Another attempt at sorting this dispute out came from a group of South Koreans who were victims of forced labor taking this issue to court. And in 2018, the South Korean Supreme Court ordered two Japanese companies to pay damages, but those companies actually refused to do so. How does that play into kind of what we're seeing today? They ordered the two Japanese companies named Mitsubishi Heavy Industries and Nippon Steel to compensate the South Koreans because they benefited from those forced laborers at the time. And after that ruling, Japanese companies refused to pay because they believe it's a settled issue. Despite that, the South Korean courts ordered the seizure of the company's assets that are held in Seoul, which angered Japan even more. And the South Korean courts ordered the victims, 15 of them, to be paid $3 million in compensation, and the companies have not paid it still. And that takes us to now, right, in terms of the South Korean government announcing that instead of the Japanese taking responsibility over this, that they're actually going to come up with this compensation fund themselves. So how is that going to work? The solution that South Korea has proposed is um, to use a government fund that has raised donations from private South Korean corporations, including the ones that benefited from the original grants and loans from Japan after the 1965 treaty. And those companies would pay into this fund and the fund would pay the victims of forced labor. So the plaintiffs who won their cases against the Japanese companies, instead of getting the money from Japan, they would get it through this fund. Of course, it sparked immediate backlash from both the victims and the opposition party because they believe that the whole point of it was to get money from the Japanese government. They're saying, look, uh, who is this president working for? One of the victims actually said this at a press conference that day. She said, is our president Japanese or Korean? We're looking to be paid from the Japanese, not from our country. They said it's the worst possible option that the Koreans could have presented. Right. I saw that the opposition party leader had said, quote, this is the biggest humiliation and stain in diplomatic history. Yes, and the opposition party is expected to really make this a political issue. There's an election coming up in South Korea next year within the legislature, and Korea-Japan relations is an emotional issue, and the politicians know that. It was going to hit many nerves, and it's clear that it already has really upset many people. Japan forcibly occupied Korea. So why should we pay compensation? The perpetrator should pay compensation. 
Why should the victim have to pay? I thought it was very absurd, so that's why I'm here. This is something that really kind of came to be uh, because of President Yoon suk yeol Why is it that he is so particularly keen on repairing South Korea's relationship with Japan, like now at this moment in time? It really has a lot to do with uh, the security environment surrounding South Korea and this region, really. But uh, the South Koreans are really seeing North Korea ramp up their nuclear program. They're conducting ballistic missile tests so regularly. They conducted an unprecedented number of tests last year. They're seeing China become more uh, militarily strong and economically strong and influential. They're seeing the Russian war. And they're making these calculations that, look, we are going to have to really lean on the U.S. for our protection and our security. And we and Japan are the two biggest Asian allies of the U.S. And the three of us need to get along and make this work because there are these major threats to this region. That's what his government has decided. And they've clearly decided that those geopolitical calculations are a bigger priority at this time. How would you describe the public's view on each other, I suppose? You know, we've talked a lot about what the families directly connected to this issue, how they feel. But how does it reverberate more generally in the public in terms of like Korean attitudes towards the Japanese or Japanese attitudes towards Koreans? The thing is, when it comes to people to people issues, like cultural issues, the Koreans and Japanese are quite close. They love visiting each other's countries. They love consuming each other's pop culture, anime, K-pop, K-drama. There's a lot of closeness there. But when it comes to historical issues, it's very different. It's very sensitive. And the overall mood here in Korea is that Korea unilaterally gave up on getting Japan to pay up for the victims, for political reasons, for diplomatic reasons. And it gets at this core issue of Koreans wanting the colonizer to show true contrition, to pay up, to go above and beyond to show that they're atoning for the violence of those days. And even though the Korean government is pushing this notion of being forward-looking, that history is history and that the governments are going to do their best to resolve these historical issues, but that the past shouldn't hamstring Korea from cooperating with Japan. Even though the government is trying to send that message, the public is going to need some convincing to believe that that is actually the right thing for Korea moving forward. You know, previous agreements fell apart because the public just didn't go along with it. And this is a very delicate and fragile situation. And we'll just have to see how it plays out. Michelle, really appreciate your time on this. Thank you so much. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Luis Lopez, and our sound designer is Yvette Sin. Our senior producer this week is Joyta Shangupta. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McCabe-Locos. Special thanks this week to Eunice Kim. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. And before I let you go, if you like this episode, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really does make a difference. You can also find us on Facebook, 
Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Elaine Chow, and for Tamara Kendacker, thank you so much for listening, and Tamara will be back next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.